0: Welcome to the MVP, the Mass Violence Podcast, the official podcast of the National Mass Violence Victimization Resource Center. I'm Dan Smith, the Director of Resources and Technology for the NMVVRC, and today uh, I'm very excited because our guest is Dr. Puni Kalra. Dr. Kalra is a clinical psychologist who specializes in cross-cultural trauma and leadership development, and she has over two decades of experience working with patients who are coping with trauma and over a decade of experience in leadership development. But perhaps more relevantly to uh, the podcast is that she also founded the Sikh Healing Collective following the shooting at the Sikh Temple in Oak Creek, Wisconsin, which occurred in August of 2012. Welcome, Dr. Kalra, to the MVP.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation today.
0: Great. Me too. Uh, You were recommended to us uh, as a guest on the podcast by my colleague and past podcast guest, uh, Dr. Alyssa Reingold, because she heard your presentation at the Eradicate Hate Global Summit in Pittsburgh uh, last fall. And at that meeting, you were talking about cultural considerations for first responders and mental health professionals and what those groups need to consider when they're responding to mass violence incidents. Can you tell us a little bit about your work with the Oak Creek community after the shooting? Absolutely.
1: Um, I wanted to start out maybe sharing a little bit about my initial reaction when this was happening in real time, and um, and then go into a little bit about the community itself and what we did there. Great. So initially when um, the shooting occurred on the morning of August 5th, 2012, I was in my home outside Denver, Colorado, and I learned of the event as I was scanning my Facebook news feed. I immediately ran to the TV and just could not believe what I was seeing. There were SWAT teams at a Sikh temple and there were images of Sikh women, men, children in distress. So what went through my head when I was watching this unfold on TV, was, wow, this is a trauma of significant magnitude. It is going to require mental health intervention, yet we are a community that doesn't embrace the very thing that we are going to need to help us heal. How are we going to do this? Who is the we? And we don't have much time. So over the course of the next two years, I worked with the community to support their healing using my background in psychology and leadership development, and also what I knew from my cultural upbringing. I was born and raised in the Sikh religion. I had gone to summer camps throughout my childhood. Um, Even though I had grown up in Chicago, about 90 minutes away from the site of the shooting, um, I still knew many of the families that were impacted. Wow. So uh, we did a lot in those two years. Um, But before we get into that, I just want to say a little bit about the community itself because not everyone um, has heard of it, except for in this context.
0: I think that would be great.
1: So Oak Creek is a small town outside of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It has a population of about 34,000. That was the population when the shooting occurred 10 years ago. The gunman had fatally shot six members of the congregation and wounded many others before he took his own life on that Sunday morning. At the time... The massacre was deemed the largest act of violence on a faith community since the 1963 church bombings in Birmingham, Alabama. It was the deadliest attack against Sikhs on U.S. soil. I wanna also honor the victims. Um, They were six men and one woman who ranged in age between 39 and 84 years. All six of the male victims wore turbans as part of their Sikh faith, and every victim was an immigrant from India. The Sikh community um, that worshipped there was really close-knit, it was about 120 immigrant families that had come to America decades earlier for a brighter future. So how did we do this? Because again, there's no playbook on this. We just knew something needed to be done. So first thing was we identified key leadership in the community and created partnership. I'm not from Oak Creek community. They don't know me. I
0: I wondered like, what was your entree into, into this community that was, I, I, I'm not totally sure of the geography here, but I'm going to guess several hundred to a thousand miles away.
1: Right. I'm living in Colorado. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I'm watching this on the news and I see I need to do something. Um, And, There's no diffusion of responsibility in this space. I can't just say, wow, this is terrible. I hope somebody helps. Mm -hmm. We're a small community. We don't have mental health professionals in our community across the nation. And so in many ways, it felt like a sense of duty um, to, to support this. And so I was coming in not knowing people in the community at all. And so I had to be really sensitive to how I entered. So first thing I did was identify key leadership in the community to create partnership. And there always is a point person in a crisis that everybody starts to go to. And in this case, it was the person that was appointed by the DOJ. And this person very quickly, um, understandably, became overwhelmed with being the point person for everything. He was a medical doctor. And as I was thinking about what to do, I reached out to him and said, listen, I can help in, in this capacity. Can we partner? And he was relieved. And welcomed us and that made all the difference in the world because if he wasn't somebody who wanted a partner didn't understand the need for mental health or wasn't open to that concept this would have been a very different beginning and a completely different trajectory
0: and you view that as sort of lucky or sort of he he was wise or
1: i i was definitely lucky that he was the person who um, I could partner with, he was already part of the community, he was respected, he was already appointed as a point person. So that helped quite a bit. Obviously, we'd have to identify other strategies of how to identify an influence if people were against it, right? Um, We'd have to come up with ways of how to package mental health in a way that they could understand it and hear it and be open to it. And that would have taken additional steps, whereas we didn't have to do that here because time was already of the essence. Great. So after um, partnering with him, we made a commitment to the congregation that we would be there for at least six months. We knew that the community would not start the healing process until they could return to some sense of normalcy. And that was going to ha- happen after the cameras left, after the news stories faded. And so we reassured them that they that we weren't going anywhere because there was a lot of travel coming through because of um, all the media attention on this event,
0: right? Yeah, we talk about that a lot. The... Everyone throws resources at a community immediately following an event, and then it stops being a news story and everyone disappears. And the community is still there, still hurting, still needing something, and the attention has turned somewhere else. So that sounds like a very wise decision on, on your part.
1: Thank you. It was important in trust building because um, when when you have a lot of new faces, you don't know. Mm-hmm. Who's gonna stay? Who's gonna go? What their motives are? You become skeptical naturally, right? You're also being um, hyper vigilant. So it was it was helpful um, to be able to communicate that um, after partnering with um, w- with the key leadership. So then, after being able to communicate our commitment um, in front of the congregation with trusted advisors and leaders. We then identified mental health professionals that were gonna help us through this. So this is like looking for a needle in a haystack in the midst of a crisis. We knew that we needed folks who understood the culture and who could speak the language, but where are we gonna find them? We knew the need, but we didn't know where we were gonna get them because what happens in the South Asian community is we have a lot of medical professionals. We joke that our parents tell us we can be lawyers, doctors, and engineers. Those are our three options. And uh, this really does catch up with us later when we need mental health professionals and we don't have them.
0: (laughs) So um, Lawyers have their uses, but mental health is usually not one of them.
1: No, (laughs) and it's not um, a field that traditionally is encouraged to go into. Um, So when we first... sent out emails to AAPI listservs and organizations, we got a lot of outpouring of response. And that was wonderful. People from all over the country wanted to help and they wanted to travel. And they said that they'll do weekend shifts to support the community because they knew the language, they knew the culture, and that's what we needed. But we realized very quickly that that one would be a lot logistical nightmare to pull off. And more importantly, that that wouldn't serve the community's needs. So the community was overwhelmed with the number of new visitors that were coming and going each week and what they really needed was consistency in order to begin building a trusting relationship right so the consistency in providers has two advantages one is it prevents members in the community from having to retell their stories and uh, risk being re-traumatized but it also allows the congregation to become more familiar with the providers and to begin to see them as part of their community So what we did was we identified a number of South Asian mental health professionals that were available regularly who could commit to coming on a weekly basis. And they were in the local Milwaukee and Chicago area. Thank God we had Chicago right there, um, 90 minutes away. And so those folks made that commitment, you know, would spend three hours just commuting back and forth on a Sunday and then spending their whole day there too, uh, week after week for for many months. It's very grateful to them. We ended up calling ourselves a Sick Healing Collective, and our mission was really to bring together all trained mental health professionals to provide that support to the community at that time. The final result when everything was said and done was that we were able to identify nearly 50 mental health professionals that represented 10 states across the country to come together to provide support to the community. The volunteers were South Asian and they were non-South Asian. They were Sikhs, they were Hindus, they were Muslims, they were Christians, and they were Jews. It was a truly collective effort
0: that's really impressive it's the my mind is just sort of spinning thinking about the logistics of all of that the I don't want to sound too melodramatic but the generosity of those folks to reach out to uh, the community in need is is really impressive and inspiring in some ways and so thank you for your role in organizing that and and serving as a leader in that group um what was it like working with the victims and family members after that shooting? I, I'm, I'm particularly curious. you've mentioned a couple times that um, the sick community is not necessarily uh, and, and I don't, I don't know that these were your words, but it's my interpretation, not necessarily predisposed to seeking mental health services in in a crisis or under stress. And so I'm wondering, how did that work?
1: Yeah, we, we had to get creative um, in how we packaged mental health. And so uh, we learned some things in this uh, process um, through trial and error. Um, so we obviously knew there was going to be a cultural stigma around seeking help. And that was evidence right from the beginning when the community members wouldn't even accept mental health care services from the American Red Cross during the funeral ceremonies. Uh, they weren't going to go into a big red tent and ask for help. Mm -hmm. It just wasn't going to happen. They might have gone in to get some water because it was a hot summer day, but that was about it. So similarly, they were unwilling to join support groups or counseling sessions that were offered to them. Um, They were hesitant to openly accept these mental health services because of the fear that they would be perceived as being weak or emotionally vulnerable or unable to manage their trauma on their own. And this is something that's common, not only in the Punjabi Sikh culture, but in many minority groups, mm-hmm. right? So what we had to do was um, we, we used different approaches of how we reached out to the adults and the children, uh, because we recognized that um, there were acculturation differences, there were gender differences, um, there were language cultural barriers that were feeding into all of this. And so with, with the adults, we decided we wanted to repackage mental health, because initially, we try to do support groups and we saw them around, but they would not enter that space. So what we did was we repackaged it and we provided, we ended up providing educational documents and presentations to the adults. We had identified that education was in fact an important value within the sick community. So we chose to support them by packaging the information about the grief process and educational materials. So what we did, was we would take the mental health team and they would listen carefully each week for what symptoms and ailments the community members were collectively presenting to them through casual conversations, right? Or what medical professionals were hearing. We'd put our heads together and say, what's the, what's the vibe this week? What are we hearing um, on the ground? And then we would compile information on that topic. We would convert it into a simple lay-friendly language, produce a single-page document that would be distributed to the congregation at the following Sunday services. Um, And these information sheets were then written in English on one side and translated into the Punjabi, which is a Sikh language, on the other side. So at the Sunday services, the mental health team would then provide a brief oral presentation in Punjabi, elaborating on the information sheets, further clarifying the topic with some examples and increasing the congregation's familiarity with them as mental health providers. And so what that really allowed us to do when we were um, listening to them in real time and addressing their immediate needs as they were showing up was it allowed the mental health team to build a deeper level of trust with the community. And second, it helped the community to see greater value and utility of mental health ideas and practices. And so we did this every week for six weeks where they've got written documentation in front of them, they're listening to someone talk about it, and so... It's helping validate their feelings, their concerns, their worries, um, and it's also empowering them if they know somebody else who might be experiencing this. Um, the other thing too is then women are folding these sheets up and they're taking them home in their purses and they're sitting, these sheets are then sitting on dining tables where maybe people aren't coming to temple because they're fearful of returning and then they can see these there. So we're trying to outreach in, in ways that were congruent with the value system of the community. And we knew we had to do that with the adults because traditional therapy support groups, counseling was not going to work.
0: Yeah. It sounds like you were doing support presentations rather than groups. And I, I think for a community like the one you're describing, that just is such a smart solution.
1: It was necessary. We're grateful that that they were able to, to Respond to that, and we were also really careful about the language that we used. Um, and so we, you know, we were. Um, it, it was important not to use language um, like counseling, therapy, support groups. Um, we we took all of the stigmatizing words away, and um, and I think just them seeing us consistently, knowing we were there, knowing we were making an effort longer term people started to open up over time and seeing the value of that and um, and so in essence they were getting mental health support without accepting it overtly <laughs> and and what that did was it opened up the floodgates because as the months went on and more time passed they started sharing so much more beyond um, just what had happened in the Oak Creek shooting, we were learning about things that were happening within their families, and because the, they had becoming increasingly more open, wow. and so that was really a great measure of how much trust had been built over time. Yeah,
0: that's that's a, that's amazing. Uh, I was I was just going to say it sounds like uh, one of the dynamics in play might have been that in over time, hearing your presentations, they were just sort of confronted with, oh my gosh, this is. She's she's talking about what's happening to me, or they're talking about what's happening to me, and I thought it would get better, but I'm still having this, and these folks are still here, um, and and they're reading off the page of my life, as as it were. Um, That's you know, I just think that Mm -hmm. that's a really strategically brilliant strategy.
1: Thank you. It was really, um, you know, it's it's like you're you're building the plane as you fly it
0: hmm exactly. Uh, Good job. And, and,
1: but, but in, and I think part of what we have to do in these spaces is we have to go in and say, regardless of how much I might know about trauma, how familiar I am with the subject, I can't lead with that knowledge because what that does is that then inadvertently it will prevent us from coming in open and curious.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's exactly what we had to do is we had to park all our knowledge out the front door and say, you know what, we might know things, but that doesn't mean that they're going to work here. So how do we come up with a plan? And we can't have our T's crossed and our I's dotted before we enter because we can't predict. We Every situation is going to be uniquely different. And so it was really important to say, well, you know what, the community knows best what it needs. And we just have to know how to listen to what they're saying and what they're not saying. And try things and see what resonates and see what doesn't resonate. So we, you know, we had this initial phase where we were providing these handouts, um, educational materials to the adults and, and slowly warming up to them with the mental health, um, oral and written interventions. And then at the same time, we were also working with the children, but we were doing things differently with them because they were a younger generation, their needs were different, their Um, level of acculturation was different. Their stigma to mental health was different. So we were able to partner with Children's Hospital of Wisconsin during those same six weeks and allow um, them to enter the, the temple and provide trauma counseling. And the parents were fine with that because they didn't know what to do with their kids or how to speak to them. And so they were okay with them you know, receiving that kind of mental health treatment. And and that was incredibly helpful to have that kind of partnership with the with the local children's hospital. And of course we were with them through that uh, with language interpretation and and customizing all of the treatments uh, culturally so that it, it really suited the children. Um, we also got involved with the teachers and the school counselors in the community meeting with them so that they could learn about the sick culture and about specific challenges that the sick children might be facing upon returning to school. This happened, the shooting happened in August, so they were gonna be returning to school. After that, there was a lot of media attention on this vulnerable community, so we were concerned that rates of bullying might increase. Teachers ought to know what symptoms of anxiety and PTSD look like for these children so that they can recognize it and make sure that, um, that they're getting addressed promptly.
0: Gosh, there's so many questions that follow from all of that. I mean, each one of those uh, areas, like, how do you talk to teachers? How do you do to, to... But the first question that I'm really wondering about is, did this process of, of reaching out to the grownups, the, the adults in, in the sick faith, and the process you've described of, of people opening up and sharing more and more as time went by, did that eventually progress to what we would think of as more traditional one-on-one psychotherapy with individuals? Or was the the model somehow different from a traditional psychotherapy model?
1: I think, yes, it was. It was a great question. I think in that collective learning and receiving of the information it took away the stigma of this is you and you need to know this. It was more of a, we are going through this. This is common. Anyone who experiences trauma is likely to experience these symptoms. And um, and it was also of if you or someone you know, so it's an opportunity to support others where you might notice these symptoms. And, and so I think, um, yeah, it would have been very similar to if we had, gotten a chance to have them individually, we would have shared some information about uh, and validation about their experiences and then moved into how do you cope with that. And that was also included on these sheets as uh, some general information about the symptomology and, and then you know what you can do about it and how you can seek help if you need to, who you can speak to. And of course, they knew that the person who was presenting was also somebody they could go to and speak to privately.
0: Mm-hmm. And that understood. I just it's, this is a fascinating approach for kind of a community level intervention, um, and uh, it it impresses me uh, more than I'm currently being able to articulate. This is really very high level stuff. I, I'm I'm wondering, and this is just my own silly academic curiosity. I think, have you? published this or uh, sort of shared this in a professional forum other than the eradicate hate conference or
1: no so <laughs> here so here here's what happened is i when this happened we assumed that this was a one and done situation right we didn't predict that this was going to become an ongoing problem in our country that we would be having these kind of shootings because remember this was the first time since 1963 that a shooting had happened in a house of worship and and so after this happened um you know we supported the community for those couple of years and um and then once we felt that they were empowered and were given the tools that they needed that we started to you know slowly pull away and and then we went back to our lives because our lives are in many ways were impacted significantly during this time, right? Because Mm -hmm. I'm living in Colorado. I'm flying to Wisconsin twice a month. And so it it was one of these things where we tried to create normalcy in our own lives um, after this and prayed that we would never have to be in the situation again. And now things are different. So- I think what's happening, though, is because the need is rising, um, we are looking at opportunities to collaborate and share and support other communities that have had this experience. And so they've been very informal conversations and pathways up until now.
0: Great. I, I think that's so valuable. I think there's so much that folks can learn. Poonie, I'm wondering, you described the the long distances that the mental health providers who you were able to recruit in the early stages uh, ninety minutes from Chicago and and from other uh, nearby cities and municipalities near Oak Creek, was that sustainable long term, or did you have to, uh, you know, sort of recruit or partner with folks from the local community eventually?
1: Yes, we did um, because we were relying on a small group of people for a long period of time. I was being sensitive to burnout, and So we branched out and solicited support from non-South Asian professionals as well. Many had come forward who had um, experience with immigrant and refugee populations, and they wanted to provide their services to our community, either free of charge or on a sliding scale. Now, they didn't know our Sikh culture, the language, the traditions, but they were offering to help. So we wanted to provide them as an option for community members, particularly those that were primarily English-speaking and more acculturated. And so, what we did was we wanted to introduce these folks to our congregation. And so, the way we did that was we created distribution flyers and we had their pictures, their credentials, specialization, insurance preferences, and contact information on these flyers. Then we invited them to come to our temple and connect with our community. Because again, you know, they're not just going to, we can't just post this flyer up and they're going to just show up we need them to come into the community and um, start really showing that there's rapport that's being built. That's the only way we're going to get the community to go to their office um, eventually. So we developed cultural information packets to help the providers better prepare for their visit to the Sikh temple, to understand the practices, what they could expect. And that we are just so grateful to them because um, they became a backup option for us as we continue to progress through the intervention
0: and did you did you find the same uh, willingness for providers of children's mental health services?
1: Yes. So they, they provided treatment for adults and children. Mostly you'd get the younger folks willing to accept because they were more open to it and there was less stigma. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Um, any other uh, programs that, that you implemented for for the community at large?
1: So the last thing we did, um, because it was so important that we were empowering the community, right? So we'd already worked with the adults and given them information. We'd worked with kids, with the the children's hospital, and then we had these backup options with local community partnerships. We also wanted to launch a mentorship program for the kids. So after providing the six consecutive weeks of trauma-focused intervention for the children, we paused to reflect on what our next steps were gonna be. And rather than assuming that we knew what was going to be best for them, we asked them what they wanted going forward. And the response we received was an overwhelming desire to continue the groups with an additional focus on... Not talking about our feelings is what they said. We want to keep getting together, but we don't want to talk about our feelings. So, of course, we were going to listen to them, but we are going to once again repackage mental health in a way that they didn't know they were getting it. Mm -hmm. And so we launched a Sick Brothers, Sick Sister Mentorship Program, which had two goals. One was to provide an emotionally safe and non-judgmental space for the kids and teens to ask questions and voice concerns. That's really important when you can't do that with your teachers or with your immigrant parents. Um, The second goal was to monitor the children on a regular basis and bring any behavioral concerns that these mentors were observing to the attention of the mental health professionals. So now we've got the mental health folks kind of phasing out and we need to get the mentors involved in pairing them with these younger children. So now we've got like older kids, mentoring younger kids. And these um, older folks were eight mentors, ages 19 to 31. And what we did was we started um, empowering them. We gave them groups of children based on age to lead. And they, over week after week, built rapport with them and gradually gained trust with them. And over time, it was 60 children in total that would attend the groups and receive benefits from the program um, each week. So it it was... um, very effective in that regard. And these mentors were supported by the mental health professionals. So what we would do as mental health professionals is we would help the mentors with planning group activities and developing subsequent discussions with the children. And that that really helped because the mentors were feeling like they were leading and supporting their community. And then they were also, if there were children in the group that they, were, they noticed something was off or there was a concern, then they could come to the mental health professionals and say, I need help here. And then we would step in. And, and that really allowed us to start phasing out and really giving the community back control.
0: Mm-hmm. That's, that's uh, again, very clever. And, and I, I like the way you put that, giving them mental health without them knowing that they were getting mental health. I mean, that's um, that just sort of seems to sum up your approach here. And it, it, you, it just, just seems like you executed it remarkably well. Since the Oak Creek shooting, there have been a number of other uh, hate-based targeted mass violence events and and shootings. Um, obviously, the, the Emanuel Church shooting here in Charleston, um, but others that have focused more on the AAPI community, like the recent Atlanta shootings, and uh, a number of people who died in the FedEx uh, shooting in Indianapolis were actually sick members themselves. Um, I'm curious if you have any recommendations that you would like to give to community leaders um, in either Atlanta or Indianapolis to make sure that the families of victims in those cities have adequate access to mental health services.
1: Absolutely. Um, Several recommendations come to mind. So First off, you want to be able to identify and partner with key community leaders who are already respected and influential in the community. So I had shared in Oak Creek that, uh, you know, there was that person, the medical doctor. Um, oftentimes in, in these communities, though, they will be, they will be medical doctors, uh, men, priests. Um, so try to identify who the leaders are so that you can partner with them. Um, and list the support of these community leaders and find a way for the community to see that you are somebody that can be trusted, right? So you have to have that introduction with them, that partnership, that liaison. If it's possible, you want to utilize mental health providers who have experience and familiarity working with South Asians. Those with language fluency are key in working with adults and immigrants um, for whom English is a second language. If you have a doctorate in the field, introduce yourself as a doctor, Uh, because that has less stigma around it than if you say you're a counselor or a therapist or a psychologist uh, or your mental health professional. Use the doctorate, it works. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, On that same line, then don't use language like counseling, therapy, support groups, because those are also loaded with stigma. Rather, you want to focus on building relationship with the community in a more informal way. You can also talk about how you're here to be helpful, how you're here to listen to their concerns, and you can validate their concerns without using a lot of the traditional psychological language that we use. Also, be willing to initiate casual dialogue uh, over a cup of tea, rather than waiting for community members to approach you. So this happened in our group where we had mental health professionals come in and they know how to do therapy one-on-one and they know how to do trauma work, but this is different, right? Again, no playbook on this, right? We don't get trained on how to deal with mass violence. And so you come into this, and especially if you don't feel like you're part of the community, then you might just stand in the corner and wait for people to come to you. They're not going to. So how do you initiate? How do you integrate yourself into the fabric of the community? How do you sort of walk around and get comfortable and listen and find ways to to join the conversation Mm -hmm. and build trust in more informal, casual ways? So it's important to learn about the community's cultures, customs, values, through observations and inquiry, your own independent research. Uh, If it's appropriate, attending the funerals to learn and observe how the community grieves and copes after experiencing a hate crime. Also being curious about who the community is. Who are they? When you go in and start having conversations, asking how long they've lived in the community, who's part of their family, what they do for a living, asking those kinds of questions rather than asking about their association with the tragedy, right? So sometimes you get folks who will go in and say, well, what did you see? How are you feeling about it? Did you know the victims? And we know that those questions are not helpful and often they're re-traumatizing for the individual it's also important that as we build partnerships with the key leaders, we should be asking for their opinions and support rather than telling them what their community needs to do, right? They're already feeling so helpless and disempowered. Mm -hmm. And so letting them identify the solutions of what's needed. It's, you know, similar to what we do in individual therapy, right? Mm -hmm. We trust that the client Mm -hmm. knows what's best for them. And uh, so doing that on a more collective level.
0: I I was just going to say, I mean, I think, you you really hit on something here about what mental health professionals feel comfortable doing and the difference between that and what needs to get done in situations like this. Um, I mean, eventually mental health professionals, if they handle themselves correctly, will get to doing the kinds of things that they are trained to do and feel more comfortable doing individual therapy and talking about feelings. But, you know there are there are steps that need to happen before those relationships develop, and uh, a couple of your comments really struck me as being um, right on point. You know we don't get trained in mass violence, and we're trained in having these intense one-on-one conversations that ask these leading, pointed, emotion-laden questions, and those kinds of interactions are not appropriate at the outset as you are introducing yourself to a community and I don't I don't know how many folks are really aware of that and and you just summarized it in such a cogent way it was, it was really really good thank you I, I, I'm, I'm gonna recommend again you, you need to speak to a book editor or something because this <laughs> is really wonderful stuff <laughs>
1: thank you you know I will say that um, there is this trepidation and I think part of this is just in our professional training, um, that if we don't feel like we are subject matter experts in something, we don't want to step in. And the truth is we can't be in this space. Um, in fact, um, again, being able to be open and curious and trust the process and is key. And um, we're more likely to do help than harm, and I know that's our biggest concern. Um, but I think, you know, I you would get comments from people saying, well, how did you know to say at least six months? What model did you use? How did you? I didn't. I didn't know anything. Um, <laughs> I, I really relied on the community to inform me of what the next steps were. And there were, you know, we trusted our collective intuition and we pause at times, uh, even after the six weeks of, of uh, intervention, we pause and said, I think they need a break. Let's just take a moment because we don't want to overstay our welcome. And we waited to hear what they needed. We waited a couple of weeks and then they started telling us what they wanted. And then we said, "Okay, we can do that. And then we would in the back ground, scramble and figure out how we could do that. (laughs) But we we did. And and that consistency um, of asking and responding to the best of our abilities, just showing up made all the difference in building that trust.
0: That's wonderful. Well, Puni, this has just been incredibly informative, and it's it's been a, a pleasure to listen to you uh, describe the way that you interacted with the uh, Oak Creek community. If people want to learn more about what you did or if they want to get in touch with you, how can they do that?
1: So I wrote up a couple blogs on all of this, and I'm happy to share that with you so you can upload it onto your website. If they want to connect with me directly, they can send me an email at drpunikalra at gmail.com. That's spelled D-R-P-U-N-I-K-A-L-R-A at gmail.com.
0: Awesome. Um, That's terrific. I just uh, thank you so much. Uh, we will absolutely post those links as part of, of uh, what we post about this podcast. And so for listeners, if, if you're listening to this podcast on one of your uh, you know, Apple podcast or Spotify or Stitcher, if you want to navigate to nmvvrc.org, the website of the National Mass Violence Victimization Resource Center, uh, navigate to our podcast page and these links will appear uh, with Dr. Calres podcast. Um, Puni, thank you so much. Uh, this was incredibly interesting and um, inspiring. And I really want to thank you for taking the time to talk with us today.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you for allowing me uh, a platform to share this important work and I hope that it helps others.
0: I, I'm sure it will. This has been the MVP, the Mass Violence Podcast, the official podcast of the National Mass Violence Victimization Resource Center. Thanks for listening.